All right. Let's get into the teaching of God's Word today. I am excited about this. We, we completed our series on worship, and we're going to move into a new series on another topic that I believe is a core topic of the church. So the title of our new teaching series is simply Move. That's it. It is Move. And the subtitle is Of the Way, Not in the Way. All right, and this is a little inside Christian joke. I'll explain it to you in a minute because we all know how funny jokes are when you have to explain them. All right, but uh, I'm going to explain that here in just a minute. But the topic, what we're diving into is discipleship and our role together as a church in doing discipleship. That, that is our goal. That's what we're going to try to accomplish over the next several weeks as we get into this topic of move. Why move? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is I don't like thinking of Christianity as a religion. I don't. When you start talking about Christianity as just one of the many world religions, then it just kind of just gets lumped into this pile as just one belief system of, of many belief systems and, you know, one bit of culture of many cultures. And, and it just kind of gets lumped in and the power gets lost and the very things that make Christianity unique get lost in the lumping in of calling it a, a, a religion or a belief system. So what if we did this? What if we didn't view Christianity as a religion or a belief system? What if we viewed it as a movement? What if we viewed Christianity as the kingdom of God moving upon the earth? And if we did that, then here's the thing. A movement requires that those that are a part of it move. If the people that are a part of it aren't moving, it's not a movement. It's a stillment, right? I just made that word up, right? So we want to see movement happen. Now, where did this subtitle of the way, not in the way? Well, if you read the book of Acts, the first followers of Jesus weren't called Christians. The first followers of Jesus were called people of the way or followers of the way. And this probably came from the fact that Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so as people began following Jesus, they, they weren't framing it as a religion. They were framing it as we are following the way that Jesus set for us. We are on the journey with Jesus. We are going through the process that Jesus called us to. We are people of the way. The first mention of this is in Acts chapter 9. And it's actually when Saul, who later became known as Paul, was persecuting the church, killing people and throwing people in prison, and he actually got the letters from the chief priests. He got permission to go to Damascus to find those who were of the way. And that is the first mention of the followers of Jesus being called the people of the way. And then it occurs several more times throughout the book of Acts. The first followers of Jesus were people of the way. But here's the problem. When we stop moving, we just get in the way. Right. So we want to be people of the way, not people in the way. Right. When when we stop moving, then suddenly everybody behind us that was moving starts running into us. And I was just at Disneyland a couple of weeks ago on vacation. And of course, Disneyland is crowded 
And when you live on Kauai, Disneyland feels even more crowded, right? Because there's as many people in that amusement park as there are on this entire island. And there are certain areas of the park where the walkways get really narrow and it's just like a mass of humanity kind of moving back and forth through these small walkways. And so one of my pet peeves is this, is when somebody right in the middle of one of these walkways decides, hey, this is the spot, we're going to stop, we're going to try to get our whole party of like 15 people to gather together right here so we can all decide where we're going to go eat. And we're just going to stop right in the middle of the walkway and just gather. And then suddenly, they're in the way. And everybody else is trying to move, but they can't go anywhere because they're in the way. You know, as I am new to Kauai and I have a new passion for bodyboarding and, and being out in the water, and, and, and I have learned that there are rules of the water, and, and, and I have gotten my scoldings out there in the water as I try to learn those rules, some of those scoldings I've deserved, and some of those scoldings I'm like, come on, relax, people, all right? But one of the rules that I have learned is this, is that if there is somebody on the wave coming quickly, and there is somebody below the wave not moving, it is the person who's not moving job to get out of the way. It is their job to go under the water or to move quickly. It is their job to get out of the way. And when you're the one on the wave moving quickly, you really hope that everybody knows that rule, right? I was at Brennecke's one time, and most people follow that rule, but I was at Brennecke's one time, and I caught this wave, and I'm coming down fast, and there was this tourist, and they turn around, and they see me coming, and I am a large individual moving at a high rate of speed. And rather than jump under the water, they just started screaming. Ah! They were like a deer in headlights. And what am I saying? Move! When we stop moving, we just get in the way. We want to be people of the way, not people in the way. Erwin McManus, who is a great pastor in Southern California, he said this, Throughout history, the greatest hindrance to the movement of Jesus Christ has been Christians. That is a very convicting statement. The greatest hindrance to the movement of Jesus Christ has been Christians. People who call themselves Christians, though they are not reflecting Jesus, or people who are Christians who just aren't moving. And we have gotten in the way. Let's, let's look at some movement words here. Let's go to the Gospel of Matthew. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to go to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And then we're going to go to the end of his earthly ministry. At the beginning of his earthly ministry, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18, says this. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
Now let's jump to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, right before he ascends to heaven. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus began his ministry by calling men to follow He closed out their earthly ministry by telling those same men to go. We have follow and we have go. Those are both movement words. It is impossible to follow without movement. It is impossible to go without movement. I was doing this with our teenagers on Thursday nights. And I actually had Milo. And I said, Milo, I'm going to walk around the room, and I want you to follow me. I said, but there's one rule. You can't leave your seats. And so I walked around the room, and Milo sat there and stared at me. You can't follow if you're not moving. You can't go if you're not moving. So Jesus is walking along the shore, and he sees two sets of fishermen, and he calls them to come follow him. And they respond immediately. Now, to to understand this concept of discipleship and to understand why these men were so willing to immediately leave their boats and follow Jesus, we need to understand that discipleship was a Jewish concept. And that's one of the reasons why I think we're not really good at it. Because we don't live in a Hebrew or a Jewish culture. We don't think with a Hebrew or a Jewish mindset. And therefore, we struggle with this concept of discipleship. So let's talk about this. At the time of Jesus, the synagogue was the center of Jewish life. Now, it's interesting because the synagogue is never mentioned in the Old Testament. It never existed in the Old Testament. So something happened between the end of the Old Testament and Jesus' time where the synagogue became the center of Jewish life. Not the temple, but the synagogue. Well, what was it? Well, after the captivity, when Ezra and Nehemiah were the leaders that helped rebuild Jerusalem and reestablish the Jewish people after captivity, they realized that straying from the word of God was their biggest problem. That when they strayed from the word of God, that's when they fell into sin. They started worshiping pagan gods, and then the judgment of God would fall upon them. And so they decided, we need a greater focus on teaching the word of God. And so they developed the synagogue. And the way we do church today, thousands of years later, is still based off of this synagogue model. The synagogue was the place that Jewish people gathered to hear teaching from the Bible from one of their religious leaders. And that's exactly what we still do today in church. We gather in church so that one of our church leaders can teach the word of God and teach the Bible. And so they developed these synagogues. The synagogues not only became the gathering place for adults to come hear the teachers teach, the synagogues also became the schools for the children. And for the children growing up in the Jewish culture, The Old Testament was the entire curriculum. 
Everything they did was the Old Testament. They learned to read by reading the Old Testament. They learned to write by writing the Old Testament. They memorized it. By the time they were like 12 years old, they had memorized the entire first five books of the Old Testament. School started when they were five years old. We still follow that same model today. And then when they were about 12 years old, only the most exceptional students would go on to what we call secondary education. The rest would move immediately into a trade. They'd either be a farmer or they would be a, a, a bricklayer or they'd be a carpenter. They would immediately move into a trade. During secondary school, the absolute best and the brightest students would apply to a rabbi to become a disciple of that rabbi. So the rabbis were the, the most well-known teachers, the most respected teachers. These were the, 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 the greatest men in the community when it came to teaching the word of God. And the way it worked was that if a rabbi accepted your application, you left home and you went and lived with that rabbi. So you left your family, you left your parents, and you went, and you didn't just go to school with the rabbi, you lived with the rabbi, you were with the rabbi 24-7. The rabbi became the most important person in your life, even more important than your parents. And that's why when we read things that Jesus says, they seem crazy to us, but they weren't that radical when Jesus was saying them. In Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, yet yeah, you've got to love me more than you love your mother or father. And we're like, man, that's pretty radical. Not back then. They understood that the rabbi was the most important person in your life. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, Jesus said, if you want to follow me and you don't hate your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister, then you can't follow me. And we read that and go, wow, that sounds kind of crazy. Well, we need to understand in the Hebrew language, the word hate doesn't mean what we think it means today. It just means love a little less. So he's saying, if you want to follow me, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your, your spouse, your kids, you need to love all of them a little less than you love me. And this made perfect sense in Jewish culture because when you became a follower of a rabbi, that rabbi became the most important person in your life. And you didn't just learn the Bible from them, you learned their entire life from them. You saw how they lived in their quiet times. You saw how they treated their wife. You saw how they treated their children. You, you saw how they interacted in the community. You saw them in public and you saw them in private. You learned everything about their life. So when you heard that one of the great rabbis was coming to your community and you were one of the best and brightest students, you put your whole portfolio together and you went and you presented your portfolio to the rabbi and you said, Rabbi, may I follow you? And most of the time, the answer was no. And when the answer was no, your education was pretty much over. It was time to go learn a trade. It was time to go be a farmer or a bricklayer or a carpenter. But if the answer was yes, come follow me, you left everything and followed them. And then listen to this. What was the goal of Jewish discipleship? The goal of Jewish discipleship was to become like your rabbi in every way. It was to become like your teacher in every way. It wasn't just to learn the Bible. It was to become like them. In fact, they didn't have any other books, right? They just had the Bible. And so when your rabbi taught something, you memorized their teachings. 
So that when you went to teach it, you could just teach it almost word for word like your rabbi. Because that was your goal, was to become like your teacher in every way. And that's why when we read the Gospels, and they wrote the Gospels some 30, 40 years after Jesus spoke, that they were able to write his sermons out word for word. Why was that? Because that was the normal part of Jewish discipleship, was to memorize everything that your teacher taught. Here's one quote that says this, A student learns what his teacher knows, but a disciple becomes what his master is. Let me say that again. A student learns what his teacher knows, but a disciple becomes what his master is. So when Jesus was walking along the seashore and he saw these fishermen and he said, come, follow me, they knew what that meant. This was a respected rabbi who was choosing them. And Jesus was going against all of the cultural norms because, number one, he was choosing them instead of them applying to him. And number two, these were not the best and brightest students. These were fishermen, which means they had given up on their education. In fact, later in the book of Acts, the people marveled. They said, how are these uneducated men turning the world upside down? He didn't choose the best and the brightest. And can we all say praise God that Jesus doesn't choose the best and the brightest? He chooses us. And immediately they were willing to follow him to become his disciples. And so if the concept of Jewish discipleship was to become like your teacher in every way, then could we say this, that the concept of New Testament discipleship is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus in every way. That is our goal. It's not just to learn knowledge. It's to become more and more like Jesus in every way. So I broke this down into three thoughts. New Testament discipleship. The first thought is this, that we would be a people that are growing in our knowledge of Jesus. We are growing in our knowledge of Jesus. And that happens in two ways. One, it happens intellectually. We study the Bible, and intellectually, as we study the Bible, we know more and more about Jesus. The second way is through intimacy. Through relationship with Jesus, we get to know him more and more. And that happens through our spiritual disciplines of having quiet time, learning to hear the voice of Jesus, talking with him, spending time with him, getting to know his heart and his character. So the first aspect of this idea of discipleship is that we grow in our knowledge of Jesus. The second aspect is this, that we reflect that growth through changes in the way that we live. That the more we get to know Jesus, it's going to create transformation. The way we live is going to change. We're going to see changes in our behavior. Right? We're going to see negative behaviors that we struggle with start to decrease. We're going to see positive behaviors start to increase we're going to see changes in behavior how about changes in our emotions right if we struggle with anger that's going to start to change and we're not going to be so angry anymore if we struggle with anxiety we can begin to change and not struggle so much in that how about changes in our priorities and motivations the things that used to motivate us don't motivate us anymore 
There's a new purpose. There's a new passion that motivates us. Our priorities begin to change. Where we invest our time and the things that we consider to be most important in our life begin to change. Changes in our disciplines. That we begin to discipline ourselves in a new way to study, to pray, to worship, to spend quiet time. Our disciplines begin to change. How about changes in our relationships? That before Jesus, man, we just had a trail of unhealthy relationships. Or, man, we just had some wreckage in our relationships. And we just had some brokenness in our families. And then as we get to know Jesus more and more, our relationships start to look healthier. And maybe we even eliminate some unhealthy relationships and we begin new healthy relationships. The process of discipleship implies that we change. And here's the third thought about this process of discipleship. Is replicating that knowledge and transformation in others. This is where movement really takes hold is that all of that flow of information and all of that flow of transformation doesn't stop with us, but it continues to move through us as we replicate that in others. And so as we look at this idea, we can see uh, as we go through this journey and this process that we begin growing in our knowledge of Jesus and then that begins to reflect in changes in our lives and then we begin to replicate that in somebody else that anywhere along this process we can choose to stop and movement stops. For some, they like to learn about Jesus but then it stops. Change? No, I'm not going to change the way I'm living. But I like going to church. It makes me feel good. So I go to church and I learn about Jesus, but I still do things my way. For others, they begin to show that transformation, but then it stops there. Replication? No, I got what I needed. But for movement to happen, we need all three of these things to continue to flow, that we are in a process of becoming more and more like Jesus every day because we are growing in our knowledge of Jesus. We are reflecting that growth through transformation in our lives, and we are replicating that knowledge and transformation in others. So then what's the role of the church in discipleship? Again, I have three thoughts on this as well. The role of the church in discipleship is that we as a church together, we would provide the process, we would provide the environment, and we would provide the training for people to continue to move forward in discipleship. The process that the church would have a clear pathway. And this is where I think most churches get bogged down, and we can certainly include ourselves in this evaluation. That discipleship usually happens on accidents. It's just kind of a random scattershot thing. We do some stuff as a church, and every once in a while, somebody gets discipled, but we just kind of do all these different things that are all scattered. What if there was a clear pathway? What if there was a focused process that we as a church knew we were making disciples because we were being purposeful about following a pathway and staying focused on that pathway and seeing movement continue to happen on that pathway? The discipleship wouldn't happen on accident, but it would move through a process. The second thing is environment, that we would provide the environment. What does that mean? First, it means that as a church, we provide a place where we encounter God together. And if you're new with us today, you may have noticed that we really, 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 really like to worship, right? We really love Jesus. 
And we are very passionate about singing to him and very passionate about lifting him up. We provide a place for people to encounter God together in our worship services. We also, as a church, would provide a place for people to be in biblical community together. And as a church, we would also provide a place for us to serve one another in ministry and meet the needs of one another in ministry. And the third idea is training. The first part of that training is the synagogue model. And that is that we come together and we get clear teaching and we get theological foundation from the Word of God. And that we provide that on Sundays as we gather together in church. The second part of that training is equipping the followers of Jesus to make disciples. Equipping the followers of Jesus so that not only am I growing, but I'm learning how to replicate it in somebody else. That if we as a church would provide those three things, we would create a movement. And that movement would be contagious. And that movement would begin to build. I got a ton more notes, but I'm running out of time. But uh, let's talk about this. So what does following and going imply? Number one, it implies a direction, not an end point. It implies that we are moving in a direction, not that we are trying to complete something. And this is where we find the major difference between the Hebrew mindsets and what we would consider the Western or the Greek mindsets. And even though discipleship is a Jewish concept and, and Jesus intended us to do it in a Jewish way, we have a Greek mindset, and so we try doing it in a Greek way. What does that mean? That means that we think of discipleship as a Bible study that needs to be completed, a book that needs to be read, a class that we need to go through. And when we finish the class, we're done. When we complete the curriculum, we're done. Because the Greek mindset is all about completing. But the Jewish mindset says no, it is a direction, not an end point. We're never done. It's never about the Bible study we finished or the book that we read. It is about the direction that we are moving and that we are moving, right? Not the end points. The second thing is this. It's about participation, not observation. Following and going means that we all participate. A couple weeks ago, I made fun of myself because um, I'm terrible at dancing and I don't enjoy dancing, right? And so I was the kid that would go to the school dances and sit in the corner uh, because I felt completely out of place and completely awkward, and, and I couldn't dance, and I found no enjoyment in it. Throughout my life, I found no enjoyment in dancing. There were times, even after I was a pastor, where I'd be at a place and people would be dancing, and people would be like, oh, I get it, pastor. You don't dance because it reminds you of your old life, and you don't want to connect with your old life. And I'd be like, no, I just don't enjoy it. So I didn't enjoy it in my old life. I don't enjoy it in my new life. I'm just not good at it. And those of you that watch me dance during worship, you know I'm not good at it. Okay, so. But here's the thing. You know what I do enjoy? I do enjoy watching dancing. When Rachel was in dance classes when she was younger, oh my goodness, nothing gave me more joy than to sit and to watch her dance and to go to her recitals. Or when I go to the, the, the big hula recital, which is coming up in a couple of weeks, but I went to it a year ago when they had it. And to sit and to watch all of the skill and the art form, and I'm just like, wow, this is amazing. 
something inside of me just comes alive a little bit when I watch dancing. But just because I observe people dancing and I enjoy observing people dancing, I would never say that I'm a dancer. Because I'm not doing it, I'm just watching it. Well, in the same idea, watching other people follow Jesus doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. You've got to participate, not just observe. To follow and to go implies that we all need to get involved and participate in the journey. The third thing is this. It implies progress, not perfection. This is a process that we are on. It is a process of becoming more and more like Jesus in every way. It is not a snap of the fingers and suddenly we're perfect. It's not a snap of the fingers and suddenly we're a reflection of God's glory. No, it is a process that we are on of becoming more like Jesus. That means we celebrate progress, not perfection. So if you feel like as a disciple of Jesus, you need to stop cussing. And you decide, you know what, I'm going to stop cussing because Jesus didn't cuss. And if I'm supposed to become like Jesus in every way, I need to stop cussing. And if you dropped 50 F-bombs last week and you only dropped 25 this week, that's progress. Let's celebrate that. Don't beat yourself up because you said it 25 times. Celebrate because you made progress. And maybe next week it'll be a few less. It's about progress. Whatever it is that God speaks to you about that says, I want you to reflect me more in this way, then let's make progress. Let's keep moving. Again, we're not celebrating the end point. We're celebrating the progress on the journey as we become more and more like Jesus in every way. And the final thought is this. It implies replication, not stagnation. I love this quote from Robbie Gallaty. I don't know if he took it from somebody else, but that's the great thing about quotes is once you say it often enough, it's yours, right? You don't have to give anybody else credit anymore. So, but I heard this from Robbie Gallaty. He says this, the gospel comes to you on its way to somebody else. The gospel comes to you on its way to somebody else. That means that when God brought you to that divine moment in your life, when you heard the gospel and made the decision to give your life to Jesus, it was never meant to stop with you. It was on its way to somebody else. When Jesus first called his disciples, the call had nothing to do with them. He didn't say, come follow me and I'll bless your fishing business. He didn't say, come follow me and I'm going to make you happier. He didn't say, come follow me and I'm going to help you overcome all your bad behaviors. You notice that the first call of Jesus had nothing to do with them. He said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He says, so when you follow me, you're going to replicate what I'm doing in others. The first call of Jesus was about replication, not stagnation. Listen to this. After a distinguished performing career, virtuoso violinist Joshua Heifetz accepted an appointment as professor of music at UCLA. Asked what had prompted his change of career. Why did he go from being a performer to being a professor? His reply was this. Violin playing is a perishable art. It must be passed on as a personal skill, otherwise it will be lost. 
He said, if all I ever do is perform and I don't pass it off, then the art will be lost. And if the gospel is only about you and you never pass it on, then the art of the gospel will be lost. It is about replication, not stagnation. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up today. thought of a lot of different ideas of how I could talk about stagnation, but the one that's on the forefront of my mind, because I am learning the joys of living in a very moist, humid environment, even more so right here with our house surrounded by trees in the jungle, is this idea of mildew. All right? And we have battled mildew in our house. We've bought different products. We've, we're trying different techniques. We're doing everything we can to keep the mildew at bay. But one of the places I've noticed it is in our closet. And so, of course, we bought a dehumidifier and stuff because we're trying to get all the moisture out of the closet. But what I noticed is this. The clothes that I wear all the time don't get mildew on them. The stuff that I don't wear for a few months, that's where the mildew shows up. I've got a bunch of hats up on a shelf in my closet, and I've got two or three hats that I wear all the time. Those are my favorite hats. Those never get mildew on them. It's the ones that just sit there that get mildew on them. In our Christian faith, guys, if we just sit there, we're going to be some mildewy, moldy Christians. Whew. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Let me finish with this, and I'm going to call you guys to some movement here today. Two authors, Helen Landaff and Pamela Girk, they wrote a book called Movement Stories for Children. And this is what they said. They said, young children in particular have a nearly insatiable desire for movement. Witness the desperate striving of a toddler to take his or her first step, the breathless active bodies of children on a playground, or the constant squirming of students confined to a desk at school. And you will see how powerful the drive towards movement can be. But all too soon, we expect children to suppress the urge to move, to sit still, be quiet, stop fidgeting, pay attention. Many educational systems in particular seem to operate from the viewpoint that unless children are sitting still, solemnly facing the teacher, they are not learning. Children are born with the drive to move, and we feel like the best way we can mature them is to get them to stop moving. Maybe instead we should learn from them. We should be inspired by them. Even a little baby, when it first starts to figure out its muscles and it can't even hardly sit up yet, what does it start doing? Squirming along the floor. And where does the baby go? Right where you don't want it to go, right? Let me squirm right over to the top of the steps. Let me squirm right over to the electrical outlet. Right? Let me squirm right over to the television set and start, you know what I mean? They squirm right where you don't want them to go, but they start squirming. And then when they get decent at squirming, they get up on their knees and they start crawling. And then they get up on their feet and they start walking. And then everywhere they go is running. You ever notice that? You ever imagine what life would be like if adults were like that? If we just ran everywhere that we went? Hang on, I got to go to the store. All right, and we just run. Children just constantly move. And then what happens? We get older. Our lifestyle gets more sedentary. We start watching more television, and then our bodies start to break down, 
and then we just don't enjoy moving. Moving hurts a little bit, and it's uncomfortable, and I would rather just not move. It's the story of life, but for some of us, it could also be the story of our faith. That when we were young in our faith, all we wanted to do was move. All we wanted to do was run. We just wanted to do things for Jesus. And then as we got older in our faith, we just got a little more sedentary. And we just stopped doing things for Jesus. And we just kind of slowed down. I want to call us today to come back to Jesus like children. To come back to Jesus with a new passion to move. To come back to Jesus with a new excitement for discipleship and what it might look like in my life and what it might look like as I replicate it in other people's lives and, and what this church might look like if it becomes a movement, what this island might look like if it becomes a movement. I want us to restore our passion for movements. Will you stand with me today? I'm going to ask you, we're just going to go into a song. We're not going to sing for a long time because we've gotten kind of late in the service here. But we're going to sing a little bit. But I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you, as we begin to sing, if you're at a place where you say, you know what, I'm tired of being sedentary. I'm tired of getting a little mildewy. I'm tired of feeling like I'm in the way a little bit, and I want to start moving. I'm going to ask you as a declaration, as a prophetic act, I'm going to ask you simply to get out of your seats, to get out of your rows, and to move forward. Just that small movement from where you're sitting to the front, just as a declaration to say, yes, I'm ready to start moving. And you say, Pastor, but we don't know what we're signing up for by coming forward. That's okay. Simon and Andrew, James and John, they didn't know either. They just left their nets and started moving. They figured out along the way what it was really all about. If you're ready to move today, I'm going to invite you to move and let this be a prophetic act. Let it mark the beginning of a new movement of discipleship, a new movement of people being one for Jesus, taught the things of the Lord, a change in their lifestyle, and the replication will continue. Let it begin. Thank you, Jesus.